Hey guys, welcome back to A Bite of D&D, the podcast that adds flavor to your games and campaigns. I am Zach, and across the internet from me is Micah, my co-host. Hey guys. And today, we're going to be talking to you all about the diabolical cults found in the Toma Foes. So these guys are found on page 18, 19, 20, and 21 of Toma Foes. And Micah, can you give us a quick rundown of what we're looking at here in these pages? Yeah, so the bulk of the information is on the pages that Zach listed. I would highly recommend you go through and read about each of the different planes in the Nine Hells, as well as the leaders about them, because it gives you a lot of good background information on what those goals and everything would be for each of them. But the cult pages themselves do give you a small breakdown of what those goals would be under each of the different leaders. But these are the cults for each of the main archdevils within the Forgotten Realms. With this, they get different goals based on whatever archdevil it is that gave them that power, some spells that they are then going to have access to and to be able to pull from, and then special abilities granted to favored cultists or leaders of each of these cults that give them a little bit more utility and power. The book has it listed that you could put these on pretty much anything and it shouldn't have a major impact on the CR. A lot of these abilities require another like minion to be present and it gives a negative to the minion while buffing the one that cast it and they kind of balance themselves out and the spells just allow them to swap spells that they would have already otherwise had with those from the list so there's not like a huge just drop of power that you're doing by turning things into cultists there shouldn't be any major balance issues you need to try and work around Right, and these are largely for, they're designed for NPCs and monsters, not for players. Though, with a little bit of tweaking, I think that you could probably offer a player a similar status within a cult. Yeah, I think a lot of these, especially just the spell lists, would work fine for characters. You could even say that none of the player characters would be have enough prestige or renown within the cult enough influence to get one of the major boons. So you could give them access to those signature spell lists that they could swap out what they've already got from without any major downsides. Um, the The main downside of that is any of your martial classes really just aren't going to have a whole lot they could do by being in a cult. But if that's the type of game you're running and you guys are trying to bring as Modius into the material plane, then you could probably get away with it. Yeah. I So we're going to approach this, I think, from two different angles today. You've gone through and just deep-dived into the lore pages previous to these in Tomophos. That's correct, right? Yes. I read through all of them. I will say that's really my only education into the Forgotten Realms devil hierarchy here since i primarily have always played homebrew but i found it to be a pretty fascinating read and definitely gives you a lot of good insight into each of the different rulers and aspects down there yeah and where i came at it from is that it's well known on here on this podcast that we are fans of over templates at this point and we like 
finding things that we can use to modify monsters and characters with little tweaks. And these are a great example of that being used. So even if you don't care so much about the devil side of D&D, there's some really good mechanic templates to be had here within these cults. Well, and we'll touch on it here just slightly. This one is focused on the diabolical cult. But speaking of those templates, if you want something you can just throw on a creature and give it a a power spike mixed up a little bit, brand it in a unique way, not too far below this are the demonic cults that are available um, from the creatures that come from the abyss. And they actually have some... Decent power drops they throw on things. They get actual modifications to their stats as well as signature spell lists and some abilities you can pull from. So while we're going over the diabolical ones, a lot of the core concepts we're going to talk about as far as why we like them apply to those as well. Yeah, there's even a cool demonic features table on page 33 that you can kind of have all these modifiers. And again... If you're not a fan of this or just, you know, your campaign has a different sort of flavor to it, you can steal all these cool modifiers and just reflavor them to something that more visually toes the line with your campaign setting. But I think, I mean, it's it's super cool, some of the ideas that they've came up with here. That's where I'm coming out of it from. But, Micah, why don't you talk to us about what, what are some of these cults that jumped out at you as being super cool? So one of the ones I found most interesting, because I think it's one of the easiest ways to introduce both a recurring villain and maybe a second plot arc down the road, comes from the cult of Levistus. So Levistus resides within a frozen tundra realm in the Nine Hells. Mm. Uh, According to the flavor text, Some believe that it used to be a space within the material plane because many creatures that reside in the material plane reside in this layer of the nine hells. And so it's believed that maybe their land formed a pact with Asmodeus or some arc devil to save themselves from the brink of extinction or some other major event. And in return, they pulled their world into the nine hells to be protected in, but now they are part of it just as well as everything else. And Levistus hmm. is the arc devil reigning over that realm. And he's very unique compared to a lot of the other arc devils because he has no agency really of his own. Asmodeus has him trapped in a giant iceberg in the, the oceans of this realm. So hmm. his boons that he grants are essentially the exact thing that he can't have. And it's the survival or escape from whatever confinement or situation someone may be in. If they're going to be put to execution, if they're being carted off to prison, maybe they're surrounded by foes or just in a seemingly impossible predicament they don't know how to get out of, maybe an arranged marriage or something like that they don't want to be a part of, and they're begging for a way out, Levistus can sign a contract with them, manipulate events, and get them out of there. But at that point, their soul then belongs to him. And one of the things I thought was 
particularly cool and why I think it can tie in with a recurring villain, bring in a secondary plot arc, is he doesn't only offer to contracts for people who need help in the moment. Those who are educated enough on the Arc Devils, on the Nine Hells, can seek out Levistus's favor, sign a contract with him to escape death, escape their fate at a future time and hmm. date. Hmm. Um, so if you have a big bad or a seemingly nobody down to their last legs in a combat encounter, they could be popped out of existence, deposited a mile away, restored to full hit points, and at that point they belong to him, their goals may shift, and you have a recurring character that you can bring in or save in some way. And I think that that's the that's that's an interesting mindset to have for uh, something to keep in mind for these guys just in general is that for every benefit there's there's a cost and that goes with the demons and the devils is that if you're giving especially NPCs or PCs you know not so much monsters but if you're giving NPCs or PCs these cult benefits the reason that they're getting these benefits is because they are under the direct oversight and command of one of these arc devils and that may not always go the way that the npc or the pc had in mind i just think that that can be an interesting change of tune especially i'm thinking like mainly because tieflings are right up right after this in the book but i'm thinking about like a tiefling who you know maybe is aligned in a different way or has motivations in a different way but if his soul if he's sold his soul to the devil you know, him helping the players is only up until the point where the where the devil decides it's done. And yeah. I think that that can be a fun, reasonable, like, twist for your party to experience. Well, and kind of right in hand with, since we've kind of been talking about the contracts and things here, the other cult that I found probably, maybe if not the most interesting, but maybe the most humorous, and I'm going to butcher the name, but the cult of Glossia, or Glossia, or I don't know. Someone correct me, please. But she is the claimed daughter of Asmodeus himself. And she actually rose to power because all devils are bound by law. They cannot break those tenets. But she rose to power by bending the law, by subverting traditions that aren't law but expected and she realized that those traditions don't have to be followed and so one of the things she did was she amassed a large amount of souls by offering to buy them up from other lords other demons using fake currency because by the mm. laws that were written in their society the only thing that currency needed to be in order to be legally considered currency, was to be minted in a specific place. So she transmuted a bunch of lead into gold, minted it at that factory, and then purchased souls using that gold, which then turned back to lead on those <laughs> that purchased it. So her whole cult and how you get her favor is trying to subvert the system, trying to get out of a pre-existing contract, and she helps those in contracts with other demon lords find loopholes within the contract to break free. But by doing so, she then claims those souls as her own and they're just 
out of the <laughs> the frying pan into the fire. There you uh, go. I really like her. Uh, one of the abilities she gives her NPCs as well, her her cult followers. It goes right into what you were saying. A lot of these do, but as a reaction, when this creature is hit by an attack, it can choose one ally it can see within five feet of it and cause that ally to be hit instead. Like I'm imagining, and and there's other places where you can do something like this, you know, with different mechanics, well, but it's just a fun. I believe it was the mastermind that we talked yeah. about a while back in one of our episodes, I believe has an ability similar to this and how we mentioned, we really like that ability for a villainous character but this is another way you could do that without having to pull from a, a class. You could have there be it be an ability granted to them by a, a more powerful patron. Yeah, and the other thing I like about it, and if you flip through, you'll see a lot of these cults have this as their ability. It's a reaction. And the thing I like about that is that, you know, they started this with, with um, uh, legendary actions in the monster manual. But this idea that, like, this monster can go outside of its turn and do something interesting, which makes fights less set in stone. It adds some elements of added excitement in my mind and a little bit of chaos and a little bit of keeping you on your toes as a player when creatures get to act outside their initiative order. And so that's something that I really appreciate out of these cult things is that it's telling me that Wizards as a company hasn't thrown mechanics out the window when thinking about lore and storytelling because this is doing both exceptionally well even here in the middle of all this lore they're thinking about their mechanics and they're putting in stuff that's going to make your games feel a whole lot better well and the other thing i like is a lot of games wind up having someone trying to open up a portal to bring about their patron or some world ending event and there's i never really have felt like there's a huge difference between any of those cults besides the thing they're trying to summon. They're people in hooded cloaks, maybe a specific race depending on the thing they're trying to summon, and you kill them and stop it. What I like about the cults, the whether it be diabolic or demonic, is that they have set goals tied specifically in with the personalities of those they are following, and each of the abilities kind of ties in in some way to those leaders. And even if you're not playing a devil-centric campaign or a demon-centric campaign, you can use those flavors there to make these sects and cults and things that you have within your games feel different from one another without having to go out of your way to make up a ton of random abilities or tables yeah. from another source. I saw one in here that I just, you know, as far as I, if we're thinking about things that add good flavor to your sessions, and I can't remember if it was in this, the devil side of the demons, but they talk about this follower grants any, any other followers around it immunity and vulnerability to the frightened condition. And that, that at first doesn't sound super crazy good until you realize that the followers could be undead. And then you're basically, you have this great mechanic now in there that's a great storytelling mechanic. But these are like, oh, what? and I don't know which one it was, but let's say it was Zariel, for instance. Oh, these are zombies that have been raised by a, a Zariel cultist, which means that any cleric that comes in first has to deal with the cultist 
before they could even attempt to turn undead. And like, I don't know, I just like that sort of feeling. Well, I do think I'm not, I'd have to look it up to know for sure. I do think turn undead in this, I don't think gives a frightened condition. I think it just acts as frightened. Yeah, it acts as frightened without putting that condition on them so that it bypasses any sort of immunity is what I think happens. It, it, It basically has all the traits of frightened, but I don't think it uses the keyword. I see. I see. I don't well, know if that's I, accurate because I don't play divine a characters lot of a lot. I'd have to look that up. I think they thought that through though when they did turn undead in this edition because I don't think it would allow them to bypass that. Well, hey, in my edition, <laughs> in the edition of Zen, you can you can have an evil cultist that keeps your undead from turning. Well, and I I do like the idea of they've got the the hand of this arc devil behind them giving them, you know, spines of iron. They will not be cowed so easily. Because if if you have a player use turn undead, maybe they feel like you're cheating a little bit. Maybe you are. But <laughs> if those undead don't bend to that force, that's a kind of a scary thing, and it would be a, a big impact on the group. Well, and I wouldn't do it at, you know, level three, you know. But you could do it at a higher level and... What I like about it is that, again, it's this great concept of not leaving behind game design when we're looking at lore. And I think D&D, especially in the combat things, can can always use whatever help it can get in making it feel strategic and not just like, oh, it's my turn. Okay, I do the same thing as I did last turn. And the enemies do the same thing that they did last turn. Um, and maybe there are some some dialogue thrown in there. Like I love when as a player, I am forced to say, Oh, these are different. They're different in this way, which means that I have to approach them in a completely different way, target them in a different way, interact with them in a different way. Anyhow. So this is, it's this podcast is shaping up to be yet another one where we just talk about how much we like Toma foes, but I really, really like what this did. I mean, even if even if this cult, I know that the what I was reading wasn't talking about zombies, but it got me thinking about like, oh, this would be fun to have somebody do this with zombies. And that's invaluable when it's giving you inspiration right there on the spot about how you can make your game better. So, yeah, I think there's not much we can do without turning this into an hour long podcast, but I'd highly recommend these are more than just tables to roll on. These are more than just a template to put on something. Each of these cults, each of these different options comes with a lot of good background information, a lot of good motives behind it. And I would definitely recommend take the time, read through the book, and get to learn what each one of these would really mean by putting it into your game. Because I could probably gush for a full hour on the different devils and demons and what they bring to the table as far as your games go. I think we started a good conversation here and hopefully you listeners can pick that up and run with it and you'll find your own interesting tidbits in those pages. Yeah, let us know if you use them, how you've you've used cults effectively in your game and maybe some options that you have that you like that aren't provided in Tome of Foes but you think would be a worthy candidate for someone to consider if they were to start their own cult. Yep. All right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. So we'll see you next time. See ya.